is episode 93 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. I'm Bryn Jackson. I'm Sarah Jackson. This is part three of our end of year wrap up clip compilation montage. Woo! Only episode. one part after this. One per quarter. They're not dedicated like that, though. Nope, nope. But we are doing four. This is number three. Uh, we are taking some time off for the holidays to be home, uh, travel a little bit, see our families. So we took some time in uh, early December to put together some of our favorite clips from the past 90-odd episodes that we've recorded. These are clips that have been meaningful to us in some way, clips we loved, clips that resonated with listeners, and... Clips we've loved, clips we've lost. Clips we wish would just stick around once in a while. The moments are fleeting, but the memories are forever because they're recorded. On that note, if you need more podcast content for your ears over this holiday season... Check out spec.fm. We have four other podcasts on the network. None of which are doing clip episodes. None of which are doing clip episodes. All original content. Those jerks. All four designers and developers helping you level up. So go to spec.fm. Check out some of our other shows. If you want to chat with us, we will be in our Slack team. Uh, Of course, that's at spec.fm slash Slack or ping us on Twitter at twitter.com slash design details FM. Before we get into the show, I'd like to thank... Wayno, the all-dancing, all-singing, fast-growing, not-quite-bourgeois, not-quite-bohemian, full-service digital agency doing amazing work in San Francisco and recently in their new office in New York. They're doing client work for companies like Airbnb, Medium, Google, Reuters, and of course, Dropbox, so you know their work is good. If you've been on Dribbble ever in your lifetime, I guarantee you've seen their work. It's wonderful. We love it, and we are so happy to have them support the podcast. What do they want? They want you to know that they're hiring. So if you need a job at truly one of the world's best agencies, go to wayno.co, that's U-E-N-O dot C-O, click the careers link in the header, tell them that we sent you and get an amazing job. Uh, Their last design hire was a listener as well. So definitely don't hesitate. Thank you so much to Wayno for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. And let's get into this compilation end of year episode. One of my favorite episodes this year was called YoTube, and it featured Mr. Mike Essel, who is one of the most like passionate, caring people I've ever met in my life. He gets very emotional about the things he, he truly loves, which includes everything from Punisher on a jet ski to what I would say is probably his like most well-known passion, and that's Cooper Union. And he talks about what got him there to try and like make the make the school better things like that. And it was really impressive how willing he was to commit so hard to this one thing. So let's get into the clip with Mike Essel. Well, man, if I start talking about Cooper Union, I'll start crying. So, so I went to Cooper Union from 1992 to 1996. And for those of you who don't know, Cooper Union is, when I went to Cooper Union, it was free. So, and, and, and what free means is that since 1859, when the school was founded, Nobody has paid to get a degree from Cooper Union. There are people who've paid to take classes or to gain access to classes. But the mission of Cooper Union for 153 years was to give a full tuition scholarship to everybody who attended. So, you know, when I was a kid, my parents saved no money for school. They, I don't even think my parents really had it on their radar that I would even maybe even go to college. So... For me to get into Cooper Union was huge because it basically gave me permission to go to art school, 
right? Without a full tuition scholarship, this me, a middle-class kid or even lower middle-class kid who had no money, art school wouldn't have really not been an option. It's it's a really risky proposition for a middle-class kid to go to their parents and say, I want an art degree. You know, maybe now with design culture, what it is, maybe it doesn't seem so risky, Mm -hmm. But I know when I was considering art school, it seemed like the craziest thing to do. I mean, people, most of the adults in my life tried to talk me out of it. So Cooper Union really gave me access to something I would have never been able to have before. And so I started a design firm after I graduated from Cooper Union with three other Cooper Union graduates. And then that that did really well. And then um, I went to graduate school for two years. And then when I got out of graduate school, I started teaching at Cooper Union again. And I loved it. There's a we teach design at Cooper Union in a way that's a little it's a little different than other schools because like you schools get accredited to give degrees, right? Yeah. And schools like say like Parsons or School of Visual Arts or even CCA here in San Francisco, they're accredited, excuse me, they're accredited to give you a design degree. But at Cooper Union we don't have any majors. So it's, it's considered a generalist program. You don't declare anything, right? So we're under no obligation to give you like an accredited design degree, right? So we give you an art degree. It's a BFA. And, and I'm empowered by the other faculty and sort of the history of Cooper Union to teach design in a way that's like, uh, the best way I could describe it is, is like a tactic in a larger fine art arsenal, right? That, that graphic design is like a mode of working. It's not, it's, it's not about serving commerce or serving a client. It's like a, it's just another way to produce your own work. So a, a lot of what we do at Cooper Union is not like I, like I, like in an identity class at some schools, I know what they'll do is they'll say, all right, we're all going to redesign this logo or we're all going to go into the real world and we're going to find a logo that needs to be redesigned. And we're going to all work on these different logos. When I teach an identity design class, it's almost always like, you know, find a cultural group that you identify with. What, what are the visual elements of that cultural group? And, you know, a cultural group could be like the Hells Angels. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be your varsity softball team. It could, it could be anything, really. And how do you use the, the language of that culture to create visuals? And then that becomes like an identity project that you maybe make a logo out of, but maybe you make a jacket that shows membership or something, right? So it's not, it's just not so applied is a good way to think about it. Okay. And our, our graduates, they go out and they do really well. They make great work and a lot of them become extremely well known in the field. But often when they graduate our students, they start their own firms. It's, it would be rare. It's, it's rare that, well, for, I should be clear about this. We only graduate about eight designers a year. I mean, Cooper Union is tiny. We accept 60 students a year, 65 if you include transfers. And of those 65, once they all break into like studying what they actually want to study, it shakes out that maybe 12 or 15 really want to do design. And by the time they're seniors, there's maybe eight to 12. Wow. So it's really easy for me to work with them individually mm-hmm and help them get jobs individually. So it doesn't have to be as structured as other schools because it's so small. So anyway, I lost track of where I was, but no, that was perfect. But you, you said one thing along the way that I was curious about. Mm -hmm. Um, You said everyone in your life was trying to convince you not to go to art school. Oh yeah. Why did you ignore all that advice? Um, I love it. 
I, I, what I've learned in San Francisco, right, working with with Mike Montero and making. He said the bagels are the worst. Oh, the bagels are the worst. This whole the food in this town just baffles me. <laughs> so what I've learned about myself is that I'm not so interested in making systems. I'm more interested in making pictures. Okay. Which is a funny distinction that I've realized. Like, well, that's that's like graphic design at its finest, right? I guess. I mean, I guess it's like I like making websites and I enjoy like figuring out a grid and figuring out like how to zone the typography so it works in the grid. And I, I enjoy that work, but I love just making pictures like this T-shirt, like drawing this T-shirt and redrawing the be- the logo so that it looks like G.I. Joe and figuring out the dimension of the pie chart and like making this single solitary image much more my bag than making a tool or making a um, hmm. Like a a system to show content, I would much rather just make a picture. So, why did you end up at uh, Mule to do web design? Because Mike is a really good friend of mine, and I needed a place to work for a year while I figured out what to do about Cooper. Gotcha. The pitch I made to Mike was, I I think I'm never going to go back to Cooper Union. I think this lawsuit's going to take a long time, and if I'm going to work for anybody else, it's going to be you. Because what I know about Mule that I didn't know about any other design firm is I knew if I worked there, I would only work on stuff I cared about, Mm -hmm. which so far has been true, which is great. Um, I'm not sure what I'm allowed to talk about as far as what projects we worked on, but it's mostly like large cultural institutions. So I, I know at the end of the day that I'm not like, you know, helping Rupert Murdoch make more money. Yeah. Well, we had, (laughs) we had Erica on and we talked a little bit about the Audubon society. Yep. And and I helped a little bit with that project, which was a great opportunity. Um, but yeah, what, so your question, why did I ignore those people? Um, in, so in junior high, I got to design the school newspaper, the school literary magazine, and the school yearbook. And I got to learn like how to use a Mac and PageMaker. And, and oh my God, PageMaker. That was like life to me. Like I didn't know what I wanted to do. <laughs> like I knew I wanted to make art and I knew I wanted to be an artist, but something about that experience laying out pages and the technical part of it and also like going on press and seeing how things were printed. It just blew my mind. I was like, wait, regular people can do this. Like I can just do this for money. Are you serious? (laughs) So then in high school, I did the school literary magazine and the school newspaper and the school, and I had more responsibility there. So I did paste up and mechanicals and, and ultimately that work through this funny chain of events is what got me into Cooper union. Cause I had a regular high school portfolio of like paintings and drawings and you know, like still lives and portraits and all that junk. And in my interview for Cooper union, the guy who was interviewing me was like, you got anything else? Which is like the most humbling, scary thing anybody's ever asked me uh-huh. because the student in front of me who was interviewed by that guy was crying at the end of the interview. So I was terrified oh, and he's like, you got anything else? And I was like, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay. And I, I pulled it up out of the pocket of my portfolio. I pulled like a copy of a school newspaper. I'm totally going to start crying, telling the story. So I pull out this copy of a newspaper and I'm like, uh, you know, like, I, you know, I designed this and I did the paste up and I went on press and I did all this. And the guy goes, how'd you learn all that stuff? I'm like, oh, I have this book. And I pulled the book out of my portfolio. It's called Production Standards for the Graphic Designer. And he's like, oh, funny. I wrote that book. Oh, shit. Which was just like my whole world just compressed in that moment, like collapsed in this one moment where I was like, I have to go to this school now. Whew. So, yeah. And he got I, you in. He, he basically in that, like, wrote a really great recommendation for me in that moment. 
so that when Cooper Union reviewed my portfolio, they had that recommendation on file. Wow. Yeah, it's huge. The other funny Cooper Union connection that that I'll, I usually have a meltdown when I describe, but man, you were getting risky here. <laughs> Cooper Union moves <laughs> me. Fire man. I'm I'm so emotional about Cooper Union. So when I was a kid, the thing that made me realize that I wanted to just do design, like straight up, like was like whoa. So there's a Kiss record, the band Kiss, <laughs> called Rock called Rock and Roll Over. And it's a, has this. It's an illustration of a buzzsaw, and it's broken up into four quadrants. And each of the guys' faces is in the quadrant. And Gene's tongue is illustrated in this way that you could imagine, like snakes out of his mouth, and kind of wraps around the spindle of the record. It's a really powerful image, at least to me. And for years, I, I remember stealing the record from my dad. It's the only thing I've ever stolen from my father. I just like put it in my bag and kept it forever. And. I remember taking the record into the school library in junior high and being like, what, what, how do I do this? What yeah. is this? And they're like, well, it's called commercial art. So I grabbed a book on commercial art, which the only one they had in the library was, was um, it's called graphic design by Milton Glaser. Mm -hmm. And then I knew, I knew it was a profession. I knew what it was. And that's what led me to do the school newspaper and the school. I, I just wanted to get my hands dirty with design, you know? So many years later, I'm showing my portfolio um, at an AIGA event. I'm like showing my work. And I led with a slide of that image of the Kiss Rock and Roll Over image. And after the talk, um, my friend Lori came up to me and she was like, do you know Michael? And I was like, Michael who? And she's like, oh, Michael Durrett is who did this record cover. And I'm like, you know that guy? And she's like, yeah. Bloop. Puts me on the phone with him. So I'm talking to him. I'm totally going to cry. Fuck. Um, <laughs> so I'm talking to him on the phone and I'm talking to like, Hey, what are you doing? And he tells me about his practice and he still does illustration and he still does all this work. And, um, he's like, what do you do? And I'm like, Oh, I run the design program at Cooper union. He's like, Oh really? I went to Cooper union. Oh my God. And I'm like, like again, my whole world just blows up because without seeing that record and without taking it to the school library, I would have never even known my whole life is graphic design. My, everything I ever wanted to do is graphic design and it all is because of that record. And this guy went to Cooper union. And the crazy thing is, is the book that I went to get from the library, <clears throat> graphic design by Bill and Glazer, that guy, he went to Cooper union. So it was one of these things where it's like, it, it was affecting my life before I even knew what it was. So anyway, so yeah, by the time I was a senior in high school, I only applied to one college. I only applied to Cooper union. How many people apply there? Depending on the year, it's between two and 3,000 people apply for 60 spots. So technically, it's by the numbers, it's the hardest school to get into in the country. We have a 2% to 3% acceptance rate. What, <laughs> what do you look for when people are applying like, or for, the, for the design? Well, uh, it, it's funny. We, because there's no, there's no stated design route, so we have a funny application process, which is, we ask you six questions and you answer those six questions with a piece of art. So it's called it. We call it the home test and okay. other colleges do this, but a lot of the colleges, they give the same test every year. Like RISD, for instance, I think still has people draw a bicycle for every home test. But what we do is different. We do, I don't want to give away the formula, but there's always, uh, we ask for a drawing of like an, basically an exterior space. We ask for a drawing of, an interior space, there'll be a twist on it. It'll say something like, um, the view from your TV or something. 
there's always a single word question. And so my favorite answer to the single word question once is the question was just surveillance. And we got, we got some pretty bad stuff of people just drawing security cameras and all kinds of stuff. But one kid put his wallet in the envelope with his ID card and with his credit cards. And he just, you know, there was just a tag on it that was like number five surveillance. It was this idea that we could just go out into the world and do stuff with his credit cards. It was amazing. Um, there's always a design question. So like the year I applied, it was like design a new type of calendar. And one, and now I write those questions or uh -huh. I help write those questions. So when I did a little twist on that was like, um, design a clock that keeps track of something other than time. So we get all kinds of weird stuff, like a, a clock that, um, measures like atomic fallout or a clock, you know, a, a clock that measures every moment in the lifespan of different kinds of insects. You know, so you, like a kid will send in a clock and you'll be like, whoa, like I never thought, like I never thought my question could be answered that way. Mm -hmm. Those are the students we usually take. That's amazing. So it's more, it's, we look for really two basic things. We want to know that you can draw, which doesn't mean that you can draw like in a perfect, like the joke we make is that you don't need to know how to draw the reflection of the room inside the gloss of a fried egg right? You don't need to do that, uh -huh. but you need to show us that you can see, right? That you, that there's something about looking and making a mark on a page that the, somehow there's a thought process there that, that it's not just stylistic that you can represent. Right. Okay. I think that's important for art school actually. Um, and we, we want you to be able to think like we, we need you to be in a receptive to new ideas. Sure. So the, the way the home test is structured is basically a way t for us to get like x-ray vision and how do you, th how do you, how do you make pictures? What, what is your mind like? And what are those pictures look like that your mind makes? And you know, the range is amazing. Like sometimes somebody will answer five of the questions with a photograph because they're photo majors or they want to be a phot photography major even though we don't have majors, <laughs> but they would, let's say they want to concentrate on photography. We still require that there's at least one, one drawing in the portfolio. Okay. Um, it's a great process. And then those home tests come into us and we assemble the faculty and a bunch of alumni and we all rate each portfolio that comes in through. So three people are assigned to each portfolio. We rate those portfolios then they're reordered by the number they were given, right? The average. And then we just start taking people that had high numbers. So as a we, as a committee of five, there's like a final committee of faculty members that review all those portfolios that by number. And then we just start taking people off the top. And by the time we get to the bottom, we've, or basically by the time we get to the middle of the stack, we've taken our whole class. Mm -hmm. Um, and we also have early decision and regular decision like other colleges do. So there's all kinds of nuance there, but so the trick is to play Moneyball and like do it for the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> um, really, if, if you're listening to this and you're interested in Cooper union, the best thing to do is to find us at a portfolio day or find us at an open house and just talk to us because we'll, we'll give you like the blueprint for what you have to do to get in. You just have to do the work. This next clip comes from episode 34 with Allison House. It's called Second Shifts. And it's all about Allison basically taking some of her own time to teach herself something new. And this something is 3D. Yeah, the example she uses is 3D. And it's yeah. so awesome because 
you have you guys seen how much work she puts out? I mean, I'm sure you have. It's yeah, insane. She's like a machine. And her 3D work has like s- progressed so quickly. I think the first thing I saw was some like bomb model. Did you guys see that? Yeah, one? I saw that. And it went so far from there. It's amazing. Yeah. She's doing good work. I love the idea of like spending all your personal time or a chunk of your personal time to really like up your game instead of like most people wait on their job to do it. Yeah. I'm a fan. Yeah. So I think you guys will like this clip from Allison House. Okay. So let's say I wanted to learn 3D. What are the best ways to learn and how have you navigated that? Um, I mean, for me, like I mentioned, I started with tutorials, but it was really about developing some kind of consistent practice around that learning. That's why I kind of call it taking myself to school, or sometimes I say I'm in night school, um, because it's it's a very deliberate way of um, producing a lot of work. And really, I think for anything you want to learn, if you want to learn it fast, produce as much work as you can as quickly as possible, right? We know that from the stuff that we do every day already. Um, so I have this, I have one technique I can share that I call second shift. Um, and it's basically how I try to, because I, I always have problems with motivation. I think everybody struggles with this. Sometimes you want to make something, but at the same time, you don't want to make something right. Like it's kind of hard to f- reach deep down and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this. Or maybe you guys don't have that problem because you've been recording all day <laughs> and making this amazing podcast. Um, but I know I have this problem. <laughs> and so I, I kind of try to find a way to take the um, part where I struggle to think about whether or not I want to do something out of the equation entirely and just do it. And so mm-hmm. there's kind of three components to this. One is I have to chain any sort of practice session on another activity. So instead of like trying to say, OK, at two o'clock every day, I'm going to do this. I, I know if I do that, it's just not going to happen. So instead, I say, okay, at the end of my work day, I'm going to spend you know another amount of time working on like a side project or learning more about 3D or creating a GIF or something. Right? That's mm-hmm. when the session has to happen. Uh, or it could be like first thing when I wake up in the morning, or it could be after I brush my teeth. But it's finding something to hook it onto so that I can do it so that I have a trigger for doing it. Um, The second piece to it is that I have to do something that's really achievable. So it has to be really easy for me to sort of flex and be like, yeah, I got this done. Um, So that's part of the reason that I put out so many gifts is because they are so easy to do. Like having a one or two second animation is a pretty small ask of yourself, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the other piece. And, and, the third part is having some sort of emotional payoff. And I think that this is something I've neglected in the past. Uh, I think if you don't feel excited about the work that you've just produced, it's really hard to kind of like keep forcing yourself to do it over and over again, right? Um, so that might be, um, so for example, I know you had Ryan Putnam on the show not too long ago. Um, and one of, um, one of the gifts that I did a couple months back was after I saw a little cactus that he had put up, a little like mm-hmm. cactus illustration. Yeah. And so I made a, a 3D edition of the cactus using his original as a guideline. But for me, there's some emotional component to that because Ryan and I used to work together. I really like his work, right? I was kind of thinking about him when I did that. It feels like it's on Dropbox Blue too. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, my subconscious. <laughs> <laughs> it kicked in. It was popping out. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, it felt really good to make that, right? It was my way of kind of like waving with some art and saying, hey, Ryan, still see you over there. How you doing? Um, <laughs> or what, what else? Like uh, one of the early buildings that I did was actually a building from Lower Knob Hill. It's one of the art academy buildings there. I used to walk by it all the time on my way to the coffee shop. And it kind of just got stuck in my head, you know, and that was kind of my way of, of thinking about it and, and getting it out. Um, but again, there was some part where pretty much everything that I've been putting out connects back to some part of my day or some part of my life in a way. And I have found that when I produce these sort of tiny bite-sized assignments, I feel really good. I feel mm -hmm. good enough that I'm going to do another one and another one until I'm too tired to keep going. And I think that's really valuable if you can do like three or four pieces in one night, like the rate at which you improve is really, really high, right? I can totally appreciate that. I'm bad at it, but yeah. I can totally appreciate it. <laughs> Get on that second shift, of, buddy. <laughs> uh, this is my second shift. There's just so much like that is mystery about Allison House. Like, okay, so when we created our spreadsheet of people we wanted to ask to have on the show, right off the bat, you were on it. We didn't know what to call you. Like, we, we had everyone's like name and title and uh, like where they worked and their Twitter handle and stuff. And the title we put in for you was Allison fucking House. <laughs> I love it. You could just do house though, you know? That's that's what I like to hear across the room is just like house. <laughs> you have that username on everything. Such a good one. And Allison.house. Allison.house, yep. Killing it with your personal branding. <laughs> this next clip comes from episode 37 with Julie Zhu. Uh, we had her on early in the year. She was one of those people that we reached out to pretty early on. Uh, one of those figures that we really, really wanted on the show. And when she finally came to meet us, we had an awesome discussion. This particular clip is about how she scaled the design team at Facebook, some of the challenges she faced. Then we get into a little bit about her writing and imposter syndrome and how she's dealt with some of those things. Uh, really inspiring episode. Julie is so cool. I can't believe she like started as an engineering intern and like went all the way up. Yes. That's amazing. OG Facebook. And she's still there 10 years later. It was built on new grads. Yep. So here's the clip with Julie Zhu. To me, you know, being a manager is really about knowing the team and knowing what the team needs. And so you, you sort of look at the team and you think, well, you know, these are the problems that our team needs to solve. And do we have the right people? And are the, you know, the people working on the, the best things, you know, the things that really let them leverage the things that they're good at, right? And are they paired with people that they love to work with? And, you know, do they feel like they're learning? And, you know, what else does the team need? And, and like, those are the kinds of questions that I get really um, interested in. And, and then, you know, you talk about things like, like, what's a good design process for the team? Or, you know, what are the ways in which this group of people can, you know, produce better work or be more efficient or, you know, love what they're doing a little bit more? And to me, like, management is, in many ways, also a design problem it's just you're designing more of like yeah know, absolutely the, the people side of it that's what exactly what cap Watkins said too oh really <laughs> <laughs> like almost word for word yeah well cap and i think we like we see pretty high to eye a lot of things <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome so you've seen the team grow from somewhat small to now the design team is huge what have been like the main pain points through that evolution yeah, um, there's like, I mean, I think every, you know, month we're looking at, uh, we're, we're learning and we're thinking about scaling and, uh, you know, we're, we're like trying to figure it out all out because it's, it's always feels new, right? Like we've never been 
in our history ever been at the size that we are at now. And that's been true every mm-hmm. step of the way. And it feels absolutely massive in that new yeah. building. Like, holy crap. <laughs> I never quite appreciated the scale of the old building, yeah. but now it's like, whoa. Yeah. And you're doing two more of them? Um, that's what I hear. I'm not. Wow. What? That's insane. <laughs> yeah. Really? I hear there. Did you yeah. not know that? No. Brian, <laughs> I should know this. I, I didn't really know this either, but somebody told me, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. I read a new story about it. Two like, more of those. Yeah. yeah. You have to plan these things like way in advanced. Yeah. It's like what? Five year outlook. Yeah. Or something. yeah. Wow. That's, anyways, sorry. Yeah. Um, okay. So what are the things that have been um, really challenging? I mean, I think a lot of it is um, figuring out how to continue to design as one voice. Um, you know, that's something where, you know, when you have like five people, it's pretty easy and everyone knows what everyone's working on. And then as you scale, you know, sort of figuring out, uh, to what extent people are, are aware or know what else is going on, but that things like design patterns, design standards, you know, what is Facebook's design voice? These are things that I think become more and more challenging. So, uh, as we scale, so that's definitely one thing I think, um, even figuring out how we scale learning. Um, and, you know, when when people join now, or it used to be, I think when you join, you know, you'd have like a one day orientation and then in like a very short amount of time, you'd be like, all right, I know everything that's going on. And I think today, you know, there's so much more that a new designer um, tr- has to understand. Every- and we try and, you know, make sure everyone has that in a, a consistent experience. Things like what is the history of Facebook design? How did we evolve to where we got to today, to what are all the different things that different project teams are working on and figuring out how to like give each new person a consistent experience um, and make sure that they feel like they can get to know the other people on the team, that they feel like, you know, prepared to um, go in and design a problem and, and get all the context that they need. So, you know, education and learning. And uh, um, uh, so those are some of the things that, that have also been more challenging as we scaled. I also just think that from a product perspective, uh, you know, when we were a college site, it was much easier to change stuff around <laughs> because everybody would be like, awesome, you launched this new feature. Like, I love it, you know, and uh, not anymore. And, you know, it's like you'd rearrange things and they're like, great, like, love what you're doing, you know, and then and then at some point, you know, we were still doing that. We were still like, oh, yeah, like, of course, we could just, you know push a button and then, you know, people get a, you know, a redesign or a new Facebook. And at some point we realized like we could no longer really do that and, and have people be comfortable with it, you know? And I I think eh, it wasn't, it was, you know, so gradual, right? Because, you know, we would grow, we we were growing and there were more and more people. But at at one point, you know, I think we started to, to still be operating as if we were, um, uh, you know, like as we did a year or two ago and suddenly we were launching these designs and people were, you know, giving us all this feedback that like, wow, why'd you guys change that? Like that, you know, like, give me the old thing back. One of the, one of the funniest things about, I mean, about the Facebook feedback to me is that people would like post pictures and be like, upvote this enough or uh, like this enough times and Mark will change it back manually. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't believe that stuff actually happened on the platform. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that that has been a learning for us too. It's like, how do we roll out new changes? You know, how do we do change? Because we're still a company that, really, you know, wants to move fast and continues to build new things. And we don't want to just get stuck. Right. I mean, that just, mm-hmm. that would be like the death of, you know, innovation. And so it's still really important for us culturally to be able to um, continue to improve our pro- product, but we also need to like balance it now with the fact that 
when you have over a billion people using your service, and again, they're not all college students who are like looking for the next thing, you know, and Mm. and really open to change. There are people for whom like changes, you know, it's like going to your living room and rearranging your furniture. It's like, even if it's a better configuration, you have to like get used to it. And so we have to, you know, talk about it more. We have to, you know, tell people why we think it's good or why, why they'll benefit from it. And we need to hold ourselves to that bar a little bit more too, when we build things, right. It can't just be for change's sake. It actually has to be worth the cost of what the change will be. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. I think the other thing on the product side is just continue to make sure that our product doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't get infinitely complex because, you know, it's much, it's always much easier to add things than it is to remove things or, you know, rearrange things. As we talked about, like, you know, rearranging things is, is hard. Uh, but if you always keep adding new things and at some point, like you realize, okay, wow, this is like really, really complex and we need to figure out how to simplify and we need to, you know, and that to me is all about the evolution of a product. So figuring out how we continue to do that at the scale that we are at, that we are at now is still, you know, one of um, the the biggest challenges that, that product teams are uh, that we always talk about. So a lot of these problems you've been very vocal about through your year of the looking glass blog series, which it's been over a year now, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it started out, uh, you know, it's, I guess it's, this is two and a half years ago, about two and a half years ago. It was, it was in January and um, you know, I've always been writing and, I mean, I don't think most people know this, but like, you know, for the previous couple of years, I always would have like a writing goal. And my writing goal usually was like, let's like write a novel. And so I had four years of writing goals, which is like to write a novel. And I did complete a novel. Never see the, it'll never see a live day because it's like, they're actually all awful, but they did get better and better. And then <laughs> one, you know, year I was like, okay, it's time for me to set, you know, what it is I want to, or what's my like writing project. And I was like, you know what, maybe it isn't a novel this year. Maybe I'll actually try blogging. You know, I'll I'll write like a little bit more publicly and I've never had a blog. And frankly, the thought of having a blog was really terrifying to me. Just the fact that I would have, you know, a public audience that would read what I wrote. Because again, when you're working on novels, it's like, you know, it's like a word doc and you're like the only person who reads it. And if it's terrible, you don't have to ever show anybody. And so I was like, I think this is going to be, you know, really hard, but I'm just going to try to do it. And so I set that goal. And that first year I was like, I'm just going to write one thing a week and it doesn't have to be any good. And I, I tried to make it, I was like, it doesn't have to be any good. It can be about anything. I'm not, you know, my goal isn't like, I'm, you know, you trying to, to build a an audience. You know, yeah. <laughs> I was just like, I'm just going to write whatever is on my mind and I just need to get into this habit of doing it. And I hope that it'll get easier. Mm-hmm. And the first couple of times it was, you know, I'd, I'd like sit in front of the blank screen and be like, I have no idea what to write about. And it's like two hours would pass. And, you know, I'd like open a couple more browser tabs and, you know, read other things to try and get inspiration. And it, it just, it was like awful. It would like take me forever to even figure out what I wanted to write about. Um, but as time passed, you know, it did get easier. And since my, my goal for myself was just to do it, just to, you know, publish something once a week, uh, it did get easier easier. And then, so I did that for a year and I was like, awesome, I did it. And then the second year I was like, okay, well, I'm actually really enjoying this. And what I learned was that when I was sitting down to write, it, it helped me think, it helped me try it, you know, in all of these like hazy things that helped me kind of distill them. Even for myself, it helped me get to a crisper articulation. And I felt that the process of writing was 
kind of like, you know, a learning thing or, or self-discovery thing for me. And so I, I kind of wanted to continue that. Um, but once a week was actually a lot, like it, it took a really, yeah, a really it took schedule. a lot, a lot of time. So the second year it was, uh, once every two weeks. So that was my goal for myself. And, uh, then, you know, the last January, like I just had a baby recently and I was like, all right, I'm, I really don't have nearly as much time. So this year it's once every three weeks. That's still quite a lot actually. It's impressive. Seriously impressive. And they're awesome. One of my favorites is the uh, how to be that designer. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. It's kind of like a sarcastic take on what you shouldn't do. Yeah. Right. I try and very because part of it too is like I've been you know trying to find like what's my what's like what's my style what's my voice and um, if you read like some of the earlier stuff it was it's a lot quirkier it's like a lot more like whack like the the metaphors and you know just are like way crazier but I think that that's still a little bit my style like I like to write stuff and you know hopefully it feels a little bit more uh quirky or there's some interesting uh uh, analogy that just is like the weird way my mind works um and but I try you know different styles I try different things you know I like did sketches one time and like you never know Mm -hmm. what it's gonna you know I just it's just to try and keep it a little bit um, different and just to also learn new things for, for myself. Well, what I really loved about that one is that so many people will rant about those topics, but it was consistently positive despite being like, yeah, don't do this stuff. (laughs) It was incredible. Like it's so easy to get negative when you're writing about stuff on the internet. And that was one of my favorite pieces of getting the message across without doing that. So I love the imposter syndrome blog post you wrote. Oh, thank you. That was awesome as well. Is that, still something on your mind that you think about or was writing that sort of like getting it all out of your system no uh it was it's definitely something that's still on my mind and i think uh you know i mean very honestly i think it's something that like i'm always like so many situations where i'm just like wow like can i do this or i'm totally feeling like an imposter Uh, and it is easier for me to reflect on because you know i think anything with some time when you you know, kind of reckon with it a little bit more and you're able to actually talk about it, then it gets easier. Um, And that's one thing that I've learned too, is like through this process of writing, sometimes when you just get it out there, even it feels scary to do so, or you're like, I don't know if people are going to agree with this or like, is this like a stupid opinion or, you know, uh, but just to be able to do that a little bit more, I think like, you know, you realize like, actually, yeah, everyone's got that. And, And the more I talk to people about things like the imposter syndrome, the more, you know, I realize like, this isn't just, it's not just like, it's me or, you know, it's just, it's like everyone has felt this at some point and it feels like a really universal thing. And the more that we can openly talk to each other about it, the the easier it is, you know, because yeah. we can support each other and it's, and you, you don't feel quite so alone. You don't feel like it's just thing you have to like hide. Worried about getting found out. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any other advice to people that might be dealing with imposter syndrome besides writing about it or have you found any thought processes that are helpful for you yeah and uh i think there's a lot of really great research in this area so it's helped me to you know under and i think this is one of the reasons why cheryl also wrote lean in because Mm -hmm. a lot of it is actually backed by research you know and all of this stuff where you're like maybe i'm the only person in the world who feels this way um, the more you sort of realize that, hey, you know, that like this is, you know, there's like there's facts, there's figures, there's statistics, uh, and the more it becomes this sort of thing that everyone's like, yeah, that that is a thing that we can all talk it's about. It's like a I peace think. of mind knowing that everyone else has yeah. that to some degree as well. Okay. Yeah, and so I think I think um, you know, for me, it's like the the just learning a little bit more about it and learning a little bit more about all of the the psych studies and the research that's been done. For me, it's been 
finding, um, you know, friends and other folks that I can talk to about some of those things or conversely, you know, being a person that I hope other people can talk to me about about some of when they're feeling that way. And, and I, I found that to be immensely helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, you know, I think more awareness all around. Definitely. This, this next clip is from one of my favorite episodes. Uh, it's called Bananagrams. features Ryan Putnam and Nick Slater, who are two of my favorite people, two of the most incredibly talented illustrators I've ever met. And we had just a blast talking. And one of the things that came up with Spirit Animals, I just thought it was a really fun clip, so I wanted to throw it in. Thoughts? Yeah, it's fun. I like it. I especially like uh, Nick Slater's noise that he makes about his spirit animal. I won't ruin it for you, but it's pretty hilarious spoiler alert yeah i don't think we have enough double guest episodes anymore this was really fun when we had ryan and nick on they were hilarious together yes they've known each other for a while and that helps all right here's our clip about spirit animals with ryan putnam and nick slater you know i have to like constantly mix it up because i mean i have add so i get very very (laughs) is that part of why you do freelance in the meantime yeah around your day job yeah i mean a Palantir does a great job by providing projects that fulfill my excitement and creativity and my outlet as a designer. Um, but sometimes there's some projects that I don't ever get a chance to work on, especially if it's for friends. I think that's the most exciting ones. Um, but I'm trying. I'm trying to dial back on the freelance, like try to get few c- consistent clients, so that way the little time I have. Um, I could do a little bit of work, but then also spend time with my girlfriend and and do other things that life. isn't just and life. Above all, Thor. life and Thor too. My thing? little boo boo. Um, uh, we're thinking about getting number another another boo boo. Yeah. Yeah. Corgi number two. Corgi number two. Hopefully. Wow. You um, did say you wanted to have a little corgi farm in Montana, dude. I do want to have a corgi farm in Montana. I don't think my girlfriend has, has like signed up for that though. <laughs> I don't. I don't even think I've actually told her about this. Just but. have Raji yeah, make you a bunch of corgi illustrations, <clears throat> and that's like second best. Dude, he made one. It was really sick. I saw his. I saw the one. And yeah, I squealed like a little girl. That's usually what I do when I see like because I follow corgi <laughs> in, Instagram and and corgis on Twitter, and like like you can hear pe- like people in the office like next door like here like. Like, like, what is that? I'm like, it's corgis. <laughs> uh, like, man. are they dying? Or no, 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 no. I just, I just get. Like, I mean, I like, I like cute. It sounds like Gimli's preparing for battle. What is going on in there? I mean, corgis. cute, stuffy, fluffy, stumpy things like myself. I'm pretty stumpy, so it's good to have an animal that's pretty. Like, that's my spirit animal is a corgi. I mean, they're not like really built for like anything else but comfort. Actually, bulldogs are really built for comfort, but but yeah, <laughs> built for wrinkles. <laughs> What's your spirit animal, Ryan? Oh, where are you spirit following animal. the spirit animal spectrum? I have no idea. Um, an otter? I like otters. Oh, otter. All right. Mm-hmm. You sure. make some dope. Your otter illustrations are bananagrams, dude. <laughs> otter this world. Dude, I remember when you made one. I, mean, oh, I remember when you made like your first oh. otter. It was like, it was blue and he's like, half his body was out of the water. Oh shit, you remember that? I do, dude. Yeah. I remember a lot of stuff you make, dude. It's yeah. Cool. You're like one of my like my biggest heroes. So like, oh, thank I mean, you. But um, do you guys want to just interview each other? <laughs> Brendan and I will go grab a beer. Oh, no. no, no, no. I would sit and watch that. Okay, but we'll, uh, sit, we'll grab a beer on the couch. I oh. think I think what's really unique about that particular piece is like how you use the the negative space with the line artwork. Mm. Um, even though like there was just like a solid backdrop, and it was just line artwork on top of it. The negative space and how you 
use your perspective to make this this shot i guess you would say um i was like wow thanks man it's next level shit this next clip is from episode 22 it's called poor man's pokemon and it features kenneth bowles this was a really fun one this is one of the very few skype interviews we did uh but we just had to get him on and one of the things we talked about was the difference between junior and senior designers and I think it's a really interesting conversation because I constantly hear about people being like almost offended by it um, or, or asking questions about it at the very least. So I loved his explanation and he kind of dove into like what, how they think, things like that. So it was really fun. Here's the clip. You know, growth as a global concept is very powerful until the point at which it's unsustainable and then you haven't planned for that eventuality and you find yourself in some real trouble. So, you know, growth of GDP also comes is also going to be correlated with growth, growth of pollution and, you know, climate change and all these sorts of terrifying global concepts. So we need to recognize that role. This has all got very deep all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, this is deep. I don't even <laughs> I feel We're so fully under- in Brian land. We're in my land and I feel very uncomfortable and unqualified to make any sort of comment. So the other thing that I thought was very interesting is you wrote it a while back was something about how junior designers spend 80% of their time creating and 20% refining Mm. and senior designers spend 20% creating and 80% refining. I'm not sure who said it. Someone quoted you a while back. It was shortly before I contacted you to Mm -hmm. set this up about like 60% thinking and then 20% creating and then 20% refining. Like it was processing the problem first mm-hmm. to reduce the amount of time spent on the other yeah. things. But I, I believe at the end of that article that you're referencing that I wrote, um, my conclusion was the experts realized that creating and refining are the same thing. That could be it. It's been quite a while yeah. since I've read it. <laughs> and I think that separation, it does go away with time because when you're creating something even as you're doing it, you're identifying opportunities for improvement. Yeah. This idea, for instance, that Photoshop and it's like, you know, the high fidelity tools, that they are there for production. They are there for the final assets and the pixel perfection. Here you go. Here is your signed and sealed red lines delivered design. That's certainly not how I use them. I use them as divergent tools for for just trying things out. You know, and when I'm making something, I'll tend to jump into a high fidelity tool very early because I can iterate really quickly. And I just immediately visually see, I, I try something, oh, it doesn't work, revert, undo, move it to the left, move it to the right, try it this configuration, that configuration, and so on. And I don't think we recognize that iteration is inherent in that act of creation. You're all, always making these micro decisions about what's better, what's worse, as you're making the thing. And so it's that idea of separating creation and then saying, okay, all right, it's done. Oh, I need to make a few tweaks. I don't, it just doesn't reflect the reality of how I work as a, as a designer. Those two things are, are so tightly woven that I can't, I can't, you know, unthread them. That's interesting. I've, I've heard a lot of opinions on whether or not you should start in, well, anything from a notebook to a high fidelity tool like Photoshop to the browser to whatever. Uh, I, I know I certainly do most of the processing in uh, a notebook, but that's mainly because I know that whatever it is, we'll have to go through several more steps before it gets to the final product, which kind of gives me more time to think about it built yeah. in. And I, I you know, yeah, I'm the I, same I way. certainly think that designers should be, you know, sketching or not, maybe not should be. I mean, it's their, it's their own choice, but I find value in, in sketching things, but I move out of that phase pretty quickly. I like to get into a, more fluid canvas and despite its reputation, Photoshop and sketch and so on, they are fluid canvases in that 
it all happens in the same space and you can move things around easily. Whereas a sketch, okay, that didn't work. Cross it out, do a new one. That actually feels like the iteration is is a bit lumpier. You know, you have to do a new sketch, mm-hmm. which, you know, it might only take you three minutes per sketch or whatever it is, you know, possibly less. But when I'm designing in a high fidelity tool, I can literally drag the thing, move it, you know, move this element to the left. Oh, that doesn't work visually. It's it, it doesn't suit the flow of the page or it's imbalanced. Move it straight back. I don't actually need to say, all right, that experiment was a failure, cross it out and start again. You know, that's what I mean by that iteration time being so tightly woven into the creation process. It's a, it's a matter of seconds sometimes. So I, I'm actually not familiar with the article. What are some other things that you see the differences between a junior and a senior designer? Um, picking your battles is, uh, I see that a lot more among the senior folks. Like standing on principles? Yeah, well, that's common across both. But where the junior and the senior okay. will differ is the junior will make a big kind of principle play out of something that actually doesn't matter. And it's intensely frustrating and it's intensely draining for that designer. Now, when I say that designer, I'm mostly talking about the young me because I went through all this. Mm-hmm. But I, I've spoken with other people and they... That's the beauty of this industry. We can talk about all us a lot. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, I've spoken with other people and they've recognized it as a, as a pattern among themselves as well. And they stand up and they yeah. dig their heels in over something. But then the problem is they do it about everything. That doesn't lead to a happy place for design because it eventually ends up with a situation where design is just regarded as you know, the boy who cried wolf, it's, oh, they're always just an obstacle to something rather than a facilitator, rather than helping to get stuff shipped. They're always the person saying, we can't, it's shit. It's not good enough. We've got to redo it and so on. The senior folk, they still have that internal drive, that kind of burning fire to ship great things. But they also recognize you can't just keep saying no to stuff. Sometimes it's better to say, okay, that's fine. That is good enough. I'm okay with that. But this is a problem for me. And so what you do is you you essentially give yourself headroom to operate and to say, this is something that, you know, I built up that bank of trust by, you know, helping to get some of these smaller decisions through. But this one, I'm going to say, now we need to take a fresh look at that. And so I think I see that reflected in, you know, you see it in the day to day work, but you also see it in kind of the the attitude that designers have. Design for a junior, design is like an ache. You see everything broken in the world and you, you you feel you have no alternative but to fix it. Like, this is my calling. I have to do this because it's a kind of a moral imperative. And again, a senior still has that, but they'll stop bitching about bathroom taps. <laughs> because, I mean, because it's been done yeah. and we know their shit, but there are bigger problems, sure. you know, to address than that. And great, if someone wants to go into the bathroom tap industry and start to standardize and do the whole kind of Don Norman thing, then that's wonderful. But... You just kind of shrug your shoulders and say, I've got bigger fish to fry than some of those things. And that helps you retain sanity. And it also helps you be a ton more effective in a large complex, even a small complex. Any kind of team is complex within a a, a complex team. I can't think of anything more important than the bathroom tap industry. So... (laughs) This next clip comes from Dustin Sinos, episode number 20 soft computer hands. It's a pretty great episode. I think it was our top episode for a long time. I don't Most think, popular episode yeah. ever. In this clip, Dustin talks about hiring at Medium. And hiring is something that we talk about on a lot of episodes. Or we try to. We try to. It comes up a lot. And I think Dustin has an awesome perspective on it. He's been a really fantastic mentor. And it all started like this night. And I just can't believe how like awesome it's been since then. So... I was really stoked on this episode. Like I was like, this guy is someone I got to know. 
he's consistently been one of the nicest people we've interacted with. Like at every step we meet him, he's just such a cool guy. I'm glad it's our most popular episode. Yeah. He deserves it. Here it is. Dustin Sinos. We've had lots and lots of conversations on the show already, actually, with about uh, not only women, but also race. And- totally. Well, one of the concerns among people of other races is that diversity seems to be co-opted by people who want just more women in tech. Right. Which, that is diversity, but that's not the end of diversity. Right. That's not the solution is more women in tech. The solution is a place where everyone feels comfortable working yeah. in tech, no matter. That's the best way to say it, yeah. Like, yeah, one thing that keeps coming up is just even having that role model. Like we were talking with Mo Woods and he's like, just having a, a black role model as a designer would be yep. amazing because totally. there's just not that many that are at least vocal and public about the work they're doing. Yep, totally. How did you guys think about that at, at Medium as you were growing the company? Was that like part of the hiring process or did it kind of happen naturally? Like we actually did training on like... um like biases that we have that we don't know. I think it was called like hidden biases. Like we had mm-hmm. someone come in and talk to us about this. Like these are ways you can identify your personal biases against hiring or not. Ooh, how do you do that? Um, <laughs> Give us the course, please. Yeah. It's, it, you just always need to remember that like everyone, you are going to have biases no matter what. You just need like the more you can train yourself to be aware of them, the better you're going to be at like not falling into the trap of them. So and at medium, like as a design team, I was like, I just tried to hire the best designers. It's like, yeah. I didn't care what your background was, what race you were, what gender you were. It's just like, if you are a good designer, it's like, I'm going to hire you and you're going to come build this beautiful product yeah. with us. It's like, that was always my perspective. And it's just like, that was the path I always took. And it, there, you need to make sure that you're not only recruiting from specific channels or only hiring your buddies. Like you definitely need to make sure that you're looking in as many diverse places as you can for talent and if you're purposely doing that you're gonna have a much better job than just like hiring people that you know were you you said you were also doing recruiting as well right yes so what what do you look for doing outbound recruiting is it how do you even pick someone to talk to that's a great question so it oftentimes depend on the role i was trying to hire someone for or like the need of the company or the design team so i always gravitated towards people that work on um side projects like it's fun to see Mm -hmm. people that are like doing this work outside of their work because it just shows that they're passionate about it i think is huge um as far as like hiring for like aptitude like you can tell i'll just be blunt like the worst is like a very senior designer that's like very stuck in their ways and if and the worst is a very junior designer that thinks they know everything like those are the two sides of the spectrum that are really bad because if you have a junior designer that comes with a huge ego, they're not going to be like being able to be mentored or taught properly. If you have a very senior person who's just stuck in their ways, it's like, what if those ways aren't the way we work at Medium or the way we design at Medium? It's not going to work. So the best is finding like very junior designers that have very good like fundamental skills that maybe they have gone, gone to a good art school or maybe they've never gone to a good art school, but they've taught themselves those things. Or like a very senior designer who's like, I just want to do something different and be surrounded by different people and like solve new problems. And I'm excited about that. Mm -hmm. Those are like, those are amazing hires. If you can find those people. It's amazing how little self-awareness designers can have when they go into things like it, it feels like we're creative and we're thinking in different ways and everything. Then you'll go into something and come out and be like, Oh shit. That was all ego. I was just pure ego. That's exactly what Julia Zoe wrote about today on medium. Did you see that one? 
I haven't read that one. It was uh, how to stand out in a design Julie interview. Zou. Julie Zhao. And the two things, oh God, I'm going to butcher this, but one of them was having self-awareness. Like yeah. that was one of her first criteria. Did she write it on Medium? She wrote it on Medium. Her posts are so good. They're yeah, so it was good. just having self-awareness to like, uh, the way she said it was kind of being comfortable knowing what you're bad at and like totally well also knowing what you're good at but yep. knowing where you can grow and like where you could maybe buddy up with someone and have them mentor you like seek them out right totally i'm i'm like so tired of like the egotistical designer mentality that like a lot of people have or have shown showcased mm-hmm. and there is a ton of people that are like absolutely fantastic in the design community i'm by no means like saying the design community is poor there is a million fantastic designers yeah. And it's not even designers, but just like anyone that is like super egotistical is like an instant, like I'm not super interested because it's like, you're not going to learn. You're not going to be a good teacher. You're not going to grow into something greater than you are. If you already think you're like all that. So it's like, you got to hire people that can grow and can understand like what they're not good at. Exactly that. And one thing like with them that we do at medium, which is crazy is like, we got pretty deep into like meditation of all things at that company. And there's like optional meditation classes three times a week. And like that just breeds self-awareness and just makes you like a more mindful person and like a better person to be around, which is like something I would like never ever thought I would ever be into. I thought it was for like monks in robes, like meditating, (laughs) but it's like, it's huge. It's It's becoming a huge thing in tech in general, right? Yeah. It's like the best thing ever. It's like absolutely fantastic. And it like, it just changes your perspective on everything and like how you work with, with each other, how you even think about things changes. Okay. On yep. a practical level, if I want to get into meditating, yep. how do I download an iPhone app called calm? I don't know who made it. I should actually look up the person that made it. And it has like five, 10, 15, 20 minute, 30 minute guided meditations and just do it. This next clip is from our episode with Brady Evans and Divya Mannion. They both work at Adobe. And one of the coolest things about that, uh, we, we kind of got into the sketch versus Photoshop conversation and talked a lot about what it means to make mistakes uh, in a large company. And it was really awesome to hear both the honesty and the optimism. And that was a really fun, determined conversation. It was great. And Adobe was actually sponsoring us at that point. So like, we still got to have these hard conversations and it was amazing. It was one of my favorite episodes. We, we coined the, uh, the pterodactyl thing, which is now a GIF in our... Like it's a GIF emoji, an animated emoji, mm-hmm. an emoji mm-hmm. in our Slack team. And it's wonderful. We need t-shirts of that. I would love a pterodactyl t-shirt. And so without further ado, here's Brady Evans and Divya Mannion. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to say, I mean, I've been doing a lot of user testing dot com use tests for uh, some of our. Um, well, Are you the one close. who posted error bad? Yes, today? I was. I, I, yes, I that mean, was it's just ridiculous. It's like a user testing dot com site. I'm. They're supposedly. Well, okay, never mind. I wouldn't express my opinions, but ex- except for the fact Wait. that you can't have error bad. As a message. Error That's like, bad. Wait, what are you saying? Somebody on usertesting.com gave you feedback that was error bad? No, no, no. no it was it, an alert on usertesting.com. When I clicked on a button, it showed through, through an alert that said <laughs> error bad. That, that was the alert message was error, error bad. Error bad. <laughs> error colon bad? No. no just error, error bad. bad. <laughs> Both capitalized. It was amazing. And yeah. the thing All is, caps. someone typed that. No. I, I know. Was like, capital right, B, capital yep. B. Yeah. It's bad. <laughs> it was wonderful. 
Maybe yeah. they mechanical turked out their error. Message. No, I, I, I know. I know how this happened, though. I know exactly how this happened. This is the team dynamics that ha- makes it happen. This is somebody making a decision that was not their decision to make. So it happens. It happens at. Uh, Do you think it was someone like leaving like a lazy placeholder? Yeah, I mean it, that's that's the, so. I mean, uh, I, I feel when you're in a team. You know, it's it's like the QE or the product manager or the designer to catch these things. But when you are working on a site as complex as usertesting.com or working on a product as complex as Photoshop, you're not able to always catch these things. And somebody makes a decision not to consult either of these folks. Uh, or maybe while. not an actual decision was no, made. Not a decision, but, but it's fast. like, I don't think this is a design thing. It's just an error message. Who cares? And then they just type type it in and then it's like at some point somebody calls it out and it's so like, much oh malice God. implied you feel, you feel like there was like there Hurtful. was there okay. was just dumbness involved Not dumbness i feel like it's something somebody it's, made it's a decision laziness. on it's just like yeah, yeah i feel like it's it's probably just an uh, oh yeah i know i, I multi-moving I parted accident i agree that it's an accident but i just feel these are the kinds of accidents i say this because like, there's like twenty hundred thousand yeah. of those in photoshop and I, I, I know i know we <laughs> talked about that so anyways every yeah. time i crash i was like oh brady got lazy oh. <laughs> someone named brady <laughs> yeah, that was exactly our last clip is from the episode how nerdy of an answer do you want Episode, episode number one. Episode number one with Sam Sophus. I think he holds the record for most times on the show. It's like three, three, maybe four. Also, he's mentioned in almost every other episode. So no, let's only not... at the beginning. Only at the beginning. He's been mentioned. Only... He's been mentioned in the most shows without a doubt. Definitely. Yeah. Shouts, he, he helped, shouts, Sam. He helped put a lot of this together, and he's now in the network, which is pretty great. Uh, but this next clip talks about work that you can brag about and being encouraged by it which is kind of cool i don't know if you guys have ever taken on work or like been really proud of your work this been really excited to share it but i don't know it's, it's exciting it'll I, be a good clip i think people want to be above like social influence but it, the truth is it feels really good to have people respond positively yeah. to the work that you do hell yeah use your stuff sam is just honest about it yeah it was great yeah, here's the clip. Uh, don't don't judge the um, quality of it too much we because this was our very first. This is our very first episode. Yeah, they we, were recording through socks. We got better, <laughs> but um, yeah, the the quality change is real from this one to our latest. You use this change log system. Yeah, could you tell us about that? Yeah, um, I'm a big fan of this. So. When I was working on Shredder, I was deploying a bunch to the web, and I feel like it was things people might not notice, like little features or things people were asking for or whatever. So I started doing all of it in a changelog on the web, and I just like put a header for each day and then like list all of the things. Um, and I had like little tags that were colored, so you like feature, improvement, fix, whatever. Or announcement, and then I do like blog posts for iOS because it was like a big group of changes. Um, and then I started like, I remember one day I like added like full test coverage for something or I think I added a bunch of indexes and like performance tested something or whatever, something really technical. And I went to put on the change log. I was like, this is stupid. Like no one cares that it's like fully tested now. Like it doesn't matter. So I was kind of like, all right, from here on, I'm not going to put anything technical or anything that's not user value in the change log. Uh, and then from there I realized like, Everything I did today, I can't like put in the change log, and that was like, well, that sucks. Like that—that's the 
brag driven development. Like I, I need to like show off that I've done some things. Um, so it helps like focus a lot on like things that matter and not just like refactoring for the sake of it or you know, whatever else. Uh, so now in whiskey, I do that as well. Um, there's a bunch of things happening under the covers, but you know, I only list things that actually people can see. Um, which is also like pretty challenging because it's like, well, yeah, I can still type in it. Like, I don't really notice anything else. Uh, so it's all very like drawing the lines, kind of interesting on whiskey because it's such a technical product. Um, but yeah, I'll just like make a header and then list a markdown. Like, you know, here's what's in this release. And then as I'm working on it, you know, I'll just say like, this one's unreleased and have like a little thing, or I'll say you know when it's released and put the date and kind of just have my running list of things. And then I'll like release you know whenever I want. Um, and I've, I found myself putting like markdown to dos in the top of the release like section, and this is like these are like the things I have to finish before I can ship it. You know, if there's like a couple little things, um, this isn't like where I check features or bugs or anything. It's just like, you know, I broke something while I was working on this, and I remember I need to go back and fix it. Like, here's just like a couple like little things. Like, this is what's blocking me from shipping this. So, I can't keep this all in this one markdown file in my repo, and it you know it's like versioned with Git and a few branch and whatnot. It all merges and. Um, that's all fine. So I don't know. I'm a big fan of that system. I don't know if I explained it as well. Yeah, I love that system. It's just total focus on like adding value to the end it's, user. It's a brag driven development, but only for users. Like only the users care if you make that stuff really. Yeah, I mean like in reality it's for the user. It's not like, you know, no one cares if all my tests pass, but they do care that the stuff is accurate. So, you know, like sure I can say I improved parsing for lists or something. But, you know, what I had to do to make that happen, like no one cares, you know. I wrote like forty unit tests, like it doesn't matter. Good talk, it, it love it. Now. Yeah, <laughs> so um, that's kind of the thing. that's gonna make my day better. Yeah, and lists and whiskey are really hard, so that's not implemented. That was it. We hope you enjoyed listening. If you did, we are on Twitter and Slack, even though we're not putting out new episodes. So hit, hit us up on Twitter at Design Details FM. We're putting out new episodes. Yeah. They're just made of old episodes. Uh, okay. They're, or com- they're, it's a chim- compilation. they're Chimera episodes. If you want to talk about that, hit us up on our Slack team as well. That's at spec.fm slash Slack. Or if you need original podcast content, go to spec.fm. We've got four other shows on the network, all about design and development, helping you level up. Thanks so much once again to Wayno, the full service, all singing, all dancing, fast growing, not quite bourgeois, not quite bohemian digital agency doing amazing design work and they are hiring designers in sf and new york city they are an amazing agency we love them and we are so happy to have them supporting the show to learn more go to ueno.co ueno check out their work read their case studies and click that career links in the header tom we sent you thanks so much once again to Wayno for sponsoring the show thanks for listening we'll be back on wednesday with one more of these at clip episodes and then we'll have new ones Woo! Woo! i'll be here again too Woo! <laughs> yay <laughs> but not for the new ones sarah for all of the ones oh that's true like in our hearts or no in the in the background in spirit and in spirit
To record them all is my real quest <laughs> And to edit them is my cause Podcast ball! <laughs> <laughs> no. I'm so glad we had that recorded. <laughs>